Well, good morning, Disciples Church. Grab your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Romans chapter 12. We're going to be in a couple little places before we get there, but that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time. I want to thank you for your prayers for uh, your elders as we were away this last week at the Shepherds Conference. Um, our annual pastors conference is a wonderful time to be poured into with God's word uh, and to receive good pastoral counsel uh, all week. And we also spent uh, a lot of hours together in prayer to meet, to brainstorm about uh, what God might have for us in this coming year. Uh, and very excited about what God has in store, Lord willing, uh, before us this year. And the next book we'll be in is a shorter Old Testament book. More information on that coming soon. I'm excited for that. But I want to take just these few weeks leading up to Holy Week, um, which is a special time. And Palm Sunday and Good Friday, the cross, what a special service that is. And then Easter Resurrection Sunday, that, that's coming soon. But in the, the, the five weeks leading up, uh, we want to spend some time in a, a mini-series that, I, that I'm titling Soli Deo Gloria. If you don't know what that means, I will tell you in a few minutes. Um, but I want to give you a little narration, uh, a little uh, observation by way of an extended introduction uh, to set up our time in these four sermons. In one of uh, the great written epic stories, um, J.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, there's this unique interaction between Sam and Frodo. Sam turns to Frodo and says, I wonder what sort of tale we have fallen into. In this comment, Sam assumes that there is a story There's something larger going on than just what's in front of them. And and that all these experiences they're having might be adding up to something greater than what they first thought. Have you ever wondered what kind of story you find yourself in? It's not hard to see that life is in the context of a story. It doesn't come at us in the framework of a math problem or in a total random setting, as some might want to tell us it is just completely random. No, life comes at us scene by scene. It it unfolds like a drama. Every day has a beginning and an end. There's all sorts of characters and settings. Some days it feels like a tragedy. Some days like a comedy. But most days like a drama. And if you think about how central this is, even just to how we do life. I mean, when you hear from a loved one that someone you care about was in a bad accident, the first thing that comes out of your mouth is, are they okay? And as soon as you get that answer, what's the next thing? You're on the, you you want to ask, what happened? What you're saying is, tell me the story. And that's, that's the way life is and the way it happens. Whether it's current affairs or job layoffs or your child's bad day at school or the collapse of an empire, none of it makes sense without a story. If we want to understand why people are the way they are, often we need to know better their story. Hey, this particular co-worker is always frumpy and grumpy and head hung low. Well, it might serve you well to understand that person's story and what they're in the middle of and what they're going through in life. If life is a story, then what's the plot? 
Who's telling the story? How do all the stories add up? And what's the purpose of all of this? Many epic stories begin with a very famous phrase. Once upon a time. You ever wondered why so many stories or tales begin with that phrase, once upon a time? Because the story begins with that phrase. In the beginning, once upon a time. That phrase is most famously known in the opening verses of the Holy Scriptures. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But we can't start there if we want to understand the story. And you might be going, what? Isn't that where the story starts? No, no, no. See, the revelation that God's given us in Genesis is too far into the story. Genesis is the beginning of the story of this life. The events here on earth. You and I story. But to get the bigger story, we have to go back beyond the creation. We have to consider the creator. We have to look into eternity past. And to get that, we have to go to another in the beginning that we find in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. What John's doing here is reaching back. He's bringing a glimpse for us to see the time before time. The one who is outside of time. But it's not just one. God is, John is, is describing the perfect and complete and all-powerful existence of the Holy Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The eternal life of God. God who always was, who is, and always will be. God is outside of time. He's eternal. It is not only in God's perfect will and timing, but that He decides to create he ordains to invite us into his story. Genesis tells us that the hallmark feature of all of creation is God's creation of mankind. We read this in Genesis chapter 1, 26-28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Church, what we must see is if we are going to rightly understand the story that's unfolding all around us, 
we have to understand that we, mankind, have shown up to an epic already in progress. This is critical. To not understand this is to miss the completely bare context and reality of what is happening all around us. To not understand this is to make our lives about ourselves and not about the one for whom it all exists. See, the story we find ourselves in is an epic. It is the epic that every other story operates within. What we must see rightly is that this epic story, the epic, is written, is produced, is directed, and is starring God. We must see this rightly. Consider with me the wonder of the fact that the story of God has always been and, and to say that when we are written into the scene, that it is an epic already in progress, is an understatement if there ever was one. What we must see today to set the table for this mini-series that I'm calling Soli Deo Gloria is that God is far beyond us in every way and yet has chosen to write us into his story. All of it belongs to him. All of it is for him. The key thing we must understand and never forget is that it is all for his glory alone. This is something that our flesh really wars with every day. And why we'll spend the next four sermons together reorienting our understanding and our priority to God and His glory alone. To get this, this morning, to get us started, I want to preach from one of the most famous passages that speaks to this reality of God's glory alone. It's at this critical turning point in Paul's letter to the Romans, the very end of chapter 11, verse 33 through 36. Romans 11, 33 through 36. Look at this with me in your Bibles. Paul says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Think about this with me, church. The Almighty Creator of all things has chosen to invite you and me to write us into His eternal epic. We must, though, understand we arrive onto the scene way late. It's a scene already in progress. It's His scene. 
So who are we to think, even for a moment, that we have a say in who gets the glory, and who gets the riches, and who gets the struggles? Who are we in light of this reality? It's his story. It belongs to him. We have to get back to this understanding because every day that you and I try to make this life about us, we are trying to direct something that is immovable. Making life very frustrating and hard for us. The problem we find ourselves in is we've been grossly exposed to people who are constantly telling us the opposite. In a secular, godless worldview, man tells us all the time that it's about us. That our happiness is most important. Think of how many well-intending parents teach, ingrain into their children that what is most important to them is their kids' happiness. I mean, this is a worldview that has saturated the most well-intending families and people. That our modern-day Western efforts are to strive for success. That our pleasure is the ultimate goal of why we do what we do. That I work to have a weekend or I work to buy the toy or to earn the retirement and the vacations. Mankind has swallowed this infectious viewpoint that says, do it your way. You can have an epic about you too. I mean, this was the original lie that was bought into. This was the deception of the deceiver. Satan says to Adam and Eve, you can be just like God if you'll eat of the forbidden fruit. The very fall of mankind in sin is the pursuit to have our own or some share of the glory. In our sin, church, we are glory thieves. At least we effort to be. Sin in its very core is idolatry. It is self-salvation. It is self-glorification. It does what it wants. Mankind has always struggled with the thought that the world revolves around us. The problem is this line of thinking places us on the throne. And we begin to think that all of this should work in accordance with what I hope or want it to be or to do. And then we get frustrated at others or even at God that it's not going the way I think it should go. We think my life, my body, my family, my stuff, my money, my time. And then justify a lot of decisions and a lot of priorities and a lot of focus in our days around that ideology. 
the great king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, defined this secular, me-centered worldview well when one day, standing on his balcony overlooking his kingdom, he says this in Daniel 4.30. Is this not the great Babylon that I have built as my royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Now, I've said before, I don't, I don't imagine that you exit your bedroom in the morning with a long robe flowing behind you with this kind of declaration over your home. And... But, but do we not, in our sin, constantly think this way? In total contrast, the Word of God teaches that everything that you and I have Everything that we are is from Him and is for Him. It's not for our glory, it's for His. It's not for our fame, it's for His. Hence the Christian worldview of soli deo gloria. All right, here's what that phrase means. Soli deo gloria means... To God alone be the glory. It is a critical hinge point factor of the Protestant Reformation in a time where there was a dominant church, the Roman Catholic Church, who was touting and holding to the idea that God's glory was important, but also the glory of the church was in there as well. And the reformers rightly stood on Scripture alone to say that God saves and works unto the glory of God alone. That was 500 and a couple years ago. But the problem is it's still a reformation needed today in every one of us as we fight our sin to make it about us and not him. Soli Deo Gloria emphasizes that all things are created, live, move, and have their being to glorify God. He will be glorified in all creation. That all that is done will ultimately be for God's glory to the exclusion of man's self-glorification and pride. God's glory is the standard by which all men fall short in our sin. The standard we are guilty of not meeting, of not living for, is the glory of God. Romans 3.23, For all have, fall, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because He is God, He is not deficient or defective or needy. There is so much Christianese. There's so many people who have such a faulty view of who God is and how he works according to traditions and phrases and ideologies that float among the church and not according to the word of God alone. We have to understand, as he's revealed it to us in his word, that God is complete within the perfection of the Holy Trinity in every way. Therefore, when God decides to create us and engage us, it is not 
out of anything deficient, but only out of his fullness and self-sufficiency and freedom. In addition, his glory is not affected by us in any way. We are so self-minded in our sin that we can even be guilty of wrongly thinking that if we don't do something, or when we do do something, it adds to or diminishes His glory. That's an unbiblical idea. That's still a me-centered way of thinking. Present-day theologian and scholar Dr. James Dozal, who will be teaching on this stage in three weeks, traveling here from Pennsylvania um, at our Reformation Bakersfield Conference, Friday evening for three hours and Saturday morning. It's a short investment of your weekend that I would highly encourage you to make a priority to sign up and come and be here. He says it this way in his book, All That Is In God, page 12 through 14, a few quotes. God is not a little better nor a little worse because of us. The reason God can receive nothing from us is because we have nothing to give Him that He doesn't already possess. We cannot subtract from His infinite beatitude, neither can we replenish or enlarge it. God's glory is is not actually increased when we glorify Him. God simply is in and of Himself. The delight He manifests in repentant sinners and the wrath He reveals against the ungodly are nothing but His own fullness of perfect being variously disclosed with reference to particular creatures at different times. If you're stretched by just a few quotes, I promise you will be stretched spending six hours with James. Okay? But it's a good stretching that will help you climb into the historic, theological, biblical understanding of who God is and make war with a lot of ideas that we've framed up according to man's traditions or thoughts. And we need to be corrected by Scripture. We need to be instructed by Scripture. Uh, R.C. Sproul, one of the modern-day giants of the faith, especially Reformed faith, uh, just passed away this last year. And the elders this week, we were just watching an interview that he had and some of his, this last season when James' book came out and R.C. was saying how he had read it three times already and was just engulfed in the clarity it was bringing for these classic theological truths that were so largely by modern day scholars being misrepresented and was touting it as just one of the great works of our modern day. So I, I am very excited to for us to get to have James come near and to teach and I pray that you would make time to to come be stretched with us in our understanding of who God is. This understanding of his completeness and his perfection, not needing us, not benefited by us, 
is the point of Romans 11, 33 through 36. Hear it again with me. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's tear this passage apart this morning. In the verse 36, it says, All things are from him and through him. We've got to see his sovereignty, his, his righteous rule of all things. There are not places where God is not. Um, there's not things that God is hands-off. Creation is and continues because God is hands-on. Your chair works, gravity works, the cells in your bodies are working because God is more present than you know how to give Him credit. So stop ever thinking that He is somehow distracted or distant from you. Oh, how short-sighted our thinking is of who our God is. Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. Acts 17, 28. Ezra says, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven and the heavens of heaven with all their host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them and the host of heaven worships you. Nehemiah 9, 6. King David says in Psalm 135, verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Psalm 139, 16. David also says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. When as yet there was none of them. Before you existed, God formed and determined every day you would live. So when a loved one that we cherish a spouse, a child, a friend dies unexpectedly or outside of the time frame that we thought they would live. While there is real mourning in the absence of someone we love, church, you must be undergirded with the bold reality that God determined their days in his holy perfection. He owes you nothing. Your idea of what a normal life is, throw it away. God is the one who decides. He is sovereign in these things. And what that does is it helps put my feet on the ground to say, Lord, this is your timing, your plan. While I might not understand it, I trust you. I have faith in you, in your perfection, not to question you sinfully, not to somehow think I have a better idea. 
Solomon says the lot is cast in the lap, but the decision is wholly from the Lord. There's no such thing as luck. Every roll of the dice, the scripture says, determined, is overseen by the holy God. Proverbs 16.33 and Job 12.23, Job makes, Job says, about God that he makes nations great, he destroys them, he enlarges nations, he leads them away. Daniel 2.21, Daniel says he removes kings and sets up kings. All things are from him and through him. He is God. He is worthy to be trusted and praised. The opening part of this section of this passage in Romans 11.33, Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. The riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God are really deep. That's what Paul means when he goes, Oh, that's his way of saying, This is really deep. Oh, How deep is God? How vast? How rich is God? In the first century, they would they define God in His wealth this way, to say that He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Quoting Psalm 50, verse 10. I don't know about you, I'm, I'm from Orange County, from Irvine, California. I'm a city kid. I'm a Southern California kid. I don't get agriculture or farming, right? But here's what I know about that day and age when this was used as a way to illustrate riches, that he who owns the cows in that kind of time and community drove the community. You couldn't plow your land without them. You couldn't fertilize your dirt without them. And so the agriculture, and therefore essentially the way that society operated, was driven by the cows, the ownership of the cows. So the, the one who owned a thousand hills filled with cattle was really, really, really stinking rich. It's a way to communicate in this vast scale the just depth of the wealth of God. I could go on and on for the, for the depth of God, the vastness, the wealth of God. That would be another very lengthy sermon series. The point is that God's pockets are really deep. Inexhaustibly deep. What about verse 35? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? He owns it all. So no one can give a gift to God and then therefore need to be repaid, somehow putting God in our debt. So that even includes like your faithfulness to serve or to live your days. You don't do that enough. You don't give enough. You don't to somehow put God in your debt. All of the days you've lived, the gifts you've lived out, the qualities you have, the money you have, it all belongs to Him. 
You, you give him nothing he needs to repay you for. He owes you nothing. He owes mankind nothing. If everything is his, we have nothing to give him that he doesn't already own. Which in the end means he owes me nothing. He owes you nothing. That means your very existence is gifted to you by his grace. Nothing you've done to deserve it. Think about that. Then, Then that means every little bit of laughter to fall out of your face. Every sweet morsel you taste that's so good. Every smile is his grace. He owes you nothing. Romans eleven thirty four. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor? You can't counsel God. You never have insight he doesn't have. But let me ask you, and we've got to be honest, what's the one thing we tend to offer God more than anything else? Some of you heard me say this before. What do we offer Him often? More than worship, more than obedience, more than respect, more than trust, more than honor. We're really good at giving God counsel. Are we not? God, I think, or God, how could you, or, or, or God, why? Questioning the infinite wisdom, sovereign perfection of God. I have no analogy, I have no metaphor I can share with you that, that helps us to see the depth of this, but I'll give you a really bad one. It's like when the three-year-old who's buckled up to the, in the car seat in the back of the car, ask if daddy knows where he's going. <laughs> or worse, tells him where he should go. Got to look at my Parker, who's 11 now, sitting in first service. Remember when he was really little, Parker had this thing he got into. We got in the car and he said, daddy, make sure you take the shortcut. He's got this nice idea, like, any time driving not on the shortcut is wasted time. Don't make us sit in the car any longer than we need to. Don't be a fool, Father. Take the shortcut. Nobody gets to counsel God. No, no, we have no advice that helps him. No one gets to straighten out God's path. Romans 11.33 How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. His, His judgments, His decisions, His providence many times. is We don't get it. We don't understand. We can't fathom. These things are understood in the mind of God and not in the mind of man. Do you realize how arrogant it is when you want to 
tell God that what's happening should be happening some way different? Now, can there be a righteous disdain for evil and sin and wickedness? Yeah. But to somehow then think that you're going to look up at God and go, hey, are, are, you, are you distracted? That is sinful on, on a level we just don't even get. How arrogant we are. Does this mean we can't understand him? <clears throat> the answer is no. It just means we understand what he wants us to. He will remain to be God and we will remain to be his subjects. That's a good thing. We understand what he chooses to reveal to us according to his written word. Isaiah 55, 8 famously says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. He is God and we are not. That's good news. There's so much to be said about who God is going for days. The Bible sure does. And, and, and church, isn't that why it's a joy to study his holy word for a lifetime? Is thinking this, this last week, we, we celebrated John MacArthur's 50th year of shepherding, being the preaching pastor at one church. It's a great hallmark, landmark re- reality of not praise be to John, but praise be to God for his plan to endure Faithful Shepherd. And just talking about uh, the volume of preaching he's done over 50 years is really remarkable. Very few have done as much. And just that, that deep longing in someone like myself who, who loves to preach and loves to and just to be an expositor of God's Word. And even talking this week with the elders about <clears throat> at the end of whatever God has in front of me, how many books will I have had the privilege to preach through at the end of my career. Um, thankfully, early on, put away the idea of topical preaching and that I have a better way to come up with what these things should look like, but just to be a, a simple expositor of the text. That what I'm doing even here today is abnormal for us here at Disciples Church. We value preaching through books. We're going to do that here in just a few weeks after Holy Week again and through the rest of the year and on. But what a joy it is to study His Holy Word for a lifetime. And just, man, that God continues to grow us and, and deepen our faith, our trust, our sanctification in Him. What a joy. What a joy. Church, what, what does God alone do? We talked about who He is. What does He do? And, he, and He's due glory. And then there's two ways that we think about glory. How we glorify God and what, what that is, but but... Also, the glory of God. Let's talk about the glory of God for a second. We understand that. We can use the phrase, the glory of God, often, and then kind of begin to kind of it, it lose its real meaning. So we have to understand this. God's glory is like the sun in the sense that it is no less blazing or less beneficial just because people ignore it or don't have a full or right idea of just how radiant it is. 
what is the glory of God? The glory of God is the holiness, the greatness, the perfection, the majesty of God put on display. It's the infinite worth of God made manifest. Isaiah 6.3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. When the holiness of God fills the earth, people see it. It's called glory. Holy means set apart. It's not common. Speaking of God's glory, His infinite value, His set-apartness shines. God's glory is the radiance of His holiness. The outstreaming of His infinite value. The glory of God is a way to say that there is an objective, absolute reality to all human wonder and awe and veneration and praise and honor and acclaim and worship. It's pointing to it. Glory of God. God alone is truly worthy of our worship, our wonder, our awe forever. When we glorify God, we give the honor and praise that He alone is due. In all these things about who God is, what does it mean for you and I? What should our absolute and unhindered priority in life be? Romans 11.36 For to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. The glory of God, the exaltation, the honor, the worship of God is the purpose of all that exists. In Psalm 96, 1-3, O oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among the peoples. What this helps us with is to understand that the things of life the everyday things that you've come to enjoy, the things that He has created, the things that He's entrusted to you, the stuff you have, the abilities you have, the people in your life, are to be enjoyed in such a way that you see Him as central to it all and you give Him praise. So pick your topic, pick your thing you love, I love to ride motorcycles, and so when I'm riding down the highway and the wind's blowing in my hair, wait, wait, sorry, we, we wear helmets, that's not true of me. I have this experience of his creation of that thing that I love, and it is sinful for my joy to terminate on creation or the activity itself. It is right that my joy and my worship would terminate on God.
That means as you cheer on your child in a sport or in academics, you don't let your praise terminate on the child. But it, but it must resonate up to God who created the child, who gave you the joy of getting to shape them and to ordain the very moment that's happening. The praise belongs to the Lord. God gives us food and flavors and wine and not so we could guzzle it down and gorge ourselves on it in gluttony and drunkenness, but rather to be able to take a bite of, of good food or a, a sip of a great wine and something occurs in the deepest parts of your soul that doesn't terminate on the thing. That's idolatry. But, but causes you to well up in worship for Him the author of these things. That there's an awe and a joy for the Creator and thereby a right handling of these things so that it's not gluttony and addiction. That we would well up with worship for Him. So this is what Paul means when he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Ephesians 3.21. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So then, church, how do we practice Glorifying God alone and not ourselves. And the first thing we must understand is you must first be saved. You must be born again. Because without salvation, you are utterly enslaved to only sin. Romans 3, 10 through 12. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That means the most generous, sacrificial person who dedicated their lives to the good of other people or to the benefit of this planet, if they're unsaved, all of that is evil. Why? Because none of it was to the glory of God. Because his glory is the standard. And when mankind wants to declare something ultimately good that is not about the glory of God, that is sin. That is a secular worldview. That's why the Bible says that apart from Christ, apart from salvation, your best deed on your best day is like a soiled minstrel rag. That's how good it is. Romans 8, 7, and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh, meaning I'm not spiritually awakened, I don't have salvation, I'm set on the flesh. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Without salvation, without Christ in us, all we do is sin. 
Nothing we do or pursue is truly unto God in His glory. His gift of grace must be given to us. Your blind eyes, as we sang about earlier, must be opened. You cannot have salvation by your own will. You must be spiritually awakened, the Scripture says. John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I will raise him up on the last day. Acts 16, 14, The Lord opened her heart to give heed to what was said by Paul. The affectionate, effective call was put on Lydia to heed the gospel call that day. The Holy Spirit must give new birth. Ezekiel 36, 26 talks about this with great clarity. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put in you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. John 1, 13 Speaking of spiritual birth, not physical birth, but our spiritual birth, being reborn, salvation, we're born not of blood, so it has nothing to do with your heritage, your family heritage. We're born not of the will of the flesh. The flesh will never will when it's bound in sin, nor of the will of man, but of God. Salvation belongs to the Lord Regeneration must be the work of the Holy Spirit for us to see and savor the gospel. But God's command on every person who lives righteously and rightly is that you would repent and believe. To turn from sin, to see your sin, and to trust your life to Jesus. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel that God the Son put on flesh, lived life in perfection without sin, died in the place of undeserving sinners on the cross and was victoriously raised on the third day from the grave. He is the only way to salvation. He is the only efficient atonement. You trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior or you eternally will suffer because of your sin. To God alone be the glory even in our salvation, salvation is God's alone. This is the point of the Reformation. This is the point of Ephesians 2, 8-9. through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. And so we don't show up and go, God, I'm so thankful for everything you did, and I'm really thankful that on that day I chose you. Like, God gets 95.8% of the credit, and you get that little 2%. No, you will fall on your face. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You will have nothing to boast in, because salvation is the work of God. The faith you have is a gift of God. God is due our praise, even in salvation. I pray that if you entered this place unrepentant of sin, Lord of your own life, that you would, it would be God's will that you would repent of your sin and trust your life to Jesus and be saved. And if and when you are saved, you are set free from the bondage of sin, you are free now to live for the glory of God, that you do what you do for Him and His namesake, no longer for yourself and your own sinful agenda. You have now the power of God to fight sin, to turn from sin, to practice repentance, and mature in the faith. Testify of this gospel to others.
And so number two, how do we practice daily glorifying God? First, you must be saved. Second, you treasure him above all else. God will not share the mantle of your heart with the other things you love. You must treasure him above all else or you are in for a hard road. I love John Piper's most famous quote, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. The more satisfied you are in him, the more truly, authentically you will worship and glorify him. The overflow of that satisfaction is praise. The Apostle Paul gets it when he says in Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. Everything is lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. How does Paul glorify God above all else? By treasuring Christ authentically, truly above everything else so that everything else looks as if it is nothing in comparison. It's not that the people he loved were nothing or the things he loved were nothing. It's just that in comparison to his love and affection and satisfaction in Christ, they looked as if they were nothing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, the old hymn says, and look full into his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. That's the point that's making. In Christ, to God alone be the glory, colors every part of your life. You die to yourself, you begin to steward the things, the people, the events of your life in such an open-handed way. It belongs to Him. It's no longer your agenda. It's not driven by your Lordship anymore. It's all His. And so if His will for you is to be falsely imprisoned for the next 20 years so that the name of Jesus would be lifted high, so be it. Why? Because it belongs to Him. Paul, when he wrote that letter to the church in Philippi is falsely being imprisoned, beaten, starved. And he pens what we consider in all of Holy Scripture the letter of joy. Why is he joyful? He is, he is nothing in his life that we would count as a source of joy, but he so loves Jesus. He's so satisfied in Christ. What he says when he says, I count it as nothing compared, that's true of him. So he's overwhelmed in joy, having nothing to do with his circumstances because he just loves his Lord. And he gets it. Oh, I pray, church, we come to know our Lord in this way. In Christ, God's glory is why we do what we do and why we don't do what we don't do. It's why... You date this person and not this person. It's why you speak like this and not like this. It's why you live like this and not like that. It's why we work hard as for God and not just for men. It's why we give sacrificially. It's why we volunteer our time and our talents. It's why we hold fast to the study of God's word. It's why we hold things open-handedly and don't dig our roots too deep into anything that's temporary. Temporary. 
It's all solely do gloria for his glory alone. The problem is our history, our actions, is a bold reminder of our infatuation, not with God, but with ourselves. With my name, with my reputation, with my fortune, with my retirement, with my days. As a result, many of our lives, we feel super lost, we feel confused, we're not happy, we're mad, we're, we're un, we feel unloved, we're just... And, I, and my thought is, I'm, just, I'm glad that God is so supreme and worthy and vast. Because little gods do little things. But the one true God is in control of it all. And in that truth, we get to walk by faith and not by sight. Church, we have to begin to realize we're not in control. We never were. And you might be thinking, I don't, Josh, I don't think God's smaller than me. I'm all for him being way bigger. And I just want to say, you might be good at saying that, but does your life say that? Is it your utter privilege and satisfaction to live your entire life for his glory alone? In this month of March, 11 years ago, 2008, God began an important work in our church, our historic church. We're approaching our 130th year, and it was an important work of reformation that began. A service that I had the privilege of being a part of that started new, a new community called the Great Room Community that we fired up in 2008. God's, God ordained this, this time, and one of my favorite memories of that season was the uh, first sermon that I preached, an illustration that I borrowed, stole from someone else, uh, and shared with the body that day. And as I was thinking back, I think I've shared it one other time about five years ago with, with you. And so, but it's, it's a good one, and it helps. And so I, I want to do something I don't normally do. I want to give you a little quick clip of one of America's great movie epics, and then we'll talk about it. So check this out. so much that this clip resonates with us in our modern day American view. Just, just the idea of, of hard work, of, of overcoming obstacles, of, of being an influence on others in a positive way. These things that we hold high and we value in our society. But we have to understand this. 
our desire when fueled by the lie of self-indulgence is that you and I, many days, want to be like Rocky in this clip. The one who's overcoming his obstacles and making a good way and is being a good influence and everyone's cheering for him and it's he's the champion the one in the spotlight and it's all my hard work's producing this thing that's great and people are acknowledging it and this is awesome the one who the kids and the crowds are cheering for and celebrating there's just that part of us that loves the idea of getting to be that champion But when we rightly understand God's glory alone, then the one who we want to be in this clip is never the one in the middle. But we will want to be like the girl in the green jacket or the boy in the blue jacket. Cheering on, pointing to our champion, Jesus Christ. That every part of my life is never to attempt to pull that spotlight onto me, but is to constantly be joyful for it to be on Him. And that what I do is for the glory of God alone. They are ecstatic. They are cheering for the champion. That's us. That's the church. We are living for the glory of God alone. We exist for the glory of God. Church, this is his world. It's his creation. It belongs to him. He's the champion. It's our utter privilege to be saved, to be set free, to cheer and live for him in everything we do. Today, we have to realize that the story of God has been going on long before we arrived on the scene. God is the central character of this story. He commands the center stage of all existence, creation, time, history, redemption, and eternity. The story of God is that we've been invited to. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing. The question that has to just wreck us today is, How can we so many days live so oblivious to this reality? So distracted. We miss it again and again and again. And I find this illustration helps. In 1995, one of my childhood friends, Aaron, was on his way to Burbank from Irvine. Northbound on the 5 to Burbank, just north of of L.A., in his 1980s Mercedes band, the thing was a clunker, going to acting class. He realized he was lost when he reached a little town named Gorman. <laughs> you know, Gorman, that little one stop pull off on the top of the mountain called the Grapevine. There's a big difference between the city of L.A. and the mountaintop of the Grapevine for almost a solid hour. How does one climb a mountain 4,100 feet in elevation and not know it? 
The same way you and I can live our entire lives completely oblivious to the grand story of the creator of the universe that's unfolding all around us. The same way you and I can make so much of someone so little as you and me and so little of someone so vast and amazing of the eternal God. I pray the Lord is at work in and through you in these things. We'll continue next week. Pray with me. Father, you are a good God. You are, you are at work. You are stirring. You are challenging. You are refining. And what a joy it is. Your word is good, Lord. The work of the Holy Spirit in this place right now is good. I'm humbled to get to be used by you for your purposes for this time. We're humbled to be entrusted with this space to meet and the things that you've ordained would be so that we could study this together this morning. Father, it's all for your glory. I pray for those who are and who this place as unbelievers who, who maybe have thought they had an idea what it meant to be a Christian or to be in religion and yet, and yet they're still the Lord of their own lives they're still largely grossly daily oblivious to what it means to truly submit to and serve Jesus as Lord in every part of who they are that, that you would captivate them capture them renew them save them and just wreck them Lord from all the ways we make it about us Lord that it would be our joy to live for you. Or maybe some are thinking today of just the ways that, you know, they're, they've been bitter or argumentative in marriage or in parenting or at work and all these ways that our flesh crimes in and we feel like we deserve better or more and we just, we make it about us. Or that we just repent of whatever that is. We die to ourselves all the more and be joyful to make it all about you. Whatever it is, it's yours. It's for your glory. Be glorified in us as we behold our God, as we slow to savor the good reality of all that you are and all that you've done in the gospel, that you would be exalted and glorified by your people. In Jesus' name we pray.